question the important issues of today and try to find a sort of spiritual connection? Welcome to Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman as your host. Religion deals with the most fundamental issues humans face. There are arguments for and against the existence of God, where religion belongs in everyday life and a number of questions left unanswered. This is where it all gets discovered. Now, here is Father John Holloman. Hello, always good to be back again. Last week, we had arrived at the so-called writing prophets of the Old Testament, which meant they call that because they were the first uh, beginning of the tradition of the prophet writing down their message. Um, so this was uh, kind of autobiographical material as well as um, spiritual content. We were talking about Amos and how he emphasized the ethical demand of Yahweh. Remember now the um, pagan religions at the time, universally, had only one purpose, and that was to placate the divinity or divinities to get them off their back so they don't zap you. Um, There's no other purpose to religion. It's the Judeo-Christian tradition alone at the time which insisted on the ethical dimension that one was called to uh, meet the ethical demands of a jealous God and that we have our own human responsibility and response uh, to his uh, call to be like him, who was concerned throughout the Old Testament with the orphan and the widow, in other words, with uh, those who are uh, marginalized in society. To the extent that we have that same concern today reflects the the inheritance we've received from the Judeo-Christian tradition. The next one, uh, writing prophet after Amos, was Hosea. His career overlaps two eras. First one being the last years of Jeroboam II, who was one of the greatest kings that the northern kingdom of Israel had. Um, he died in 746 BC. Um, and the years of instability that followed. Uh, about 10 years of instability to around 736. Jeroboam's son, Zechariah, was murdered after only six months on the throne. And his assassin was in turn killed by another one month on the throne uh, by Menahem, who ruthlessly put down any resistance to him and paid heavy tribute to a newly resurgent Assyria under Tiglath-Pileser. And to pay tribute to another monarch was to be their vassal. Um, Menahem died a natural death after 10 years on the throne, but his son lasted only two years before falling victim to the conspiracy of Pika, who was the army commander. So, you can say he staged a coup. Pekah lasted for 20 years before being knifed by Hosea, Hosea, not Hosea, Hosea, who was the last king of Israel, and he would die in Assyrian chains. In other words, for about 10 years there, the northern kingdom of Israel was a real banana republic. Now, Hosea's reference to all this can be found in chapter 7, verses 5 to 7. On the day of our king, the princes were overcome with the heat of wine. He extends his hand among dissemblers. The plotters approach with hearts like ovens. All the night their anger sleeps. In the morning it flares like a blazing fire. 
They're all heated like ovens and consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me, meaning Yahweh. Hosea's message was a bit more balanced than that of Amos, whose emphasis was entirely on judgment and um, punishment. He all, he mentions that, but he also has um, a message of renewal that the judgment, the punishment is not the last word. There's always a possibility of a renewal of the people. Now, the key to understanding Hosea, Hosea is his marriage to Gomer. You've heard of Gomer Pyle, I'm sure. You didn't know that was the lady's name. Um, Gomer was, to put it politely, a slut. Hosea was constantly having to go to some other man's home and pulling her out of bed. Now, in those days, divorce was quite simple. In front of three witnesses, you simply announced and put it in writing, I divorce her, I divorce her, I divorce her, and that's it. She's out of, of the house. And if she doesn't have a family to take her back in, she's in uh, bad trouble because they didn't have Social Security or anything like that in those days. So she was um, sort of kicked out onto the street. Now, Hosea found that he couldn't do that because for some strange reason, which he himself could not explain, he still loved her in spite of all the uh, her, her errant behavior. And Hosea was the first to compare the Sinai Covenant with marriage. We've mentioned that before. Um, and it made its way into the documents of Vatican II Council, uh, comparing uh, marriage with um, a covenant, which is not something that can be broken. It's not a contract. It can be, uh, if you don't fulfill the terms of it, you can negate the contract. Um, now, every aspect of Israel, and now we're talking about the, the northern kingdom, every aspect of Israel's corporate life, the politics, the economics, the religion, was tainted by a false allegiance, by misdirected, vicious behavior. Like one so completely enslaved by a habitual way of living and thinking, that he lacks both the will, power, and the imagination to change himself. Uh, obvious example is, is the alcoholic. Just as a personal crisis can or may mark a new beginning for an individual, um, AA people talk about the bottoming out experience. So Hosea saw in Israel's impending catastrophe an opportunity not just punishment, but an opportunity for her people to recover their spiritual health. He makes explicit what was only implicit in Amos. God's wrath is redemptive. It is meant to heal like a surgeon's scalpel, not to destroy. Hosea used a second analogy as the father disciplining his son. Now the theme of discipline through suffering became recurrent throughout Scripture after Hosea. And that would reach its uh, apex in what we call Second Isaiah. We'll get to that eventually. Um, <clears throat> discipline through suffering. After purgation will come a new relationship, which is the basic idea of purgatory. Um, in Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, we have this. I will lay waste her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are the hire my lovers have given me. I will turn them into rank growth, and wild beasts shall devour them. 
I will punish her for the days of the Baals, for whom she burnt incense, while she decked herself out with her rings and her jewels. And in going after her lovers, forgot me, says the Lord. Life in the wilderness is precarious, looking back to their exodus from Egypt to the promised land, where one is reminded that his life depends upon God's mercies and not his own devices. One returns to the wilderness for a place to make a new beginning after one has been stripped of all illusions about the kind of life we had, the direction of life that had existed up to that point. The bottom line is that like his love for Gomer, God's love is stronger and deeper than Israel's infidelity. Now, <clears throat> Tiglath-Pileser, who was the Assyrian uh, monarch, died in 727. And King Hosea, who we referred to as the last Israel, Foolishly thought that the new Assyrian emperor would not be strong enough to keep his vast dominions under control. He refused tribute in 724. Now, Shalmaneser V, who was the successor of Tiglath-Pileser, replied by attacking Samaria itself. Now, although he, the monarch, was killed during the battle, his successor, Sargon II, finished the job by taking the city of Samaria after a three-year siege in 721. Don't forget, Samaria was the capital of the Northern Kingdom. According to Sargon's annals, some 27,290 Israelites were deported to Persia and replaced by colonists from Babylonia. And this is where the expression the ten lost tribes of Israel comes from, and was the beginning of the religious split between Jews and Samaritans. Um, the policy of um, forcefully relocating the population of a defeated people was um, rather simple. If people are allowed to stay on their traditional land, which they, they've lived on for centuries, the more likely they are to sooner or later put together a revolt. But if you transplant them into a foreign community, um, they will be assimilated. They don't have any stake in um, starting a revolt. And uh, it's a it's a it's a brutal tactic, but it seemed to work because it's this is the point at which we start talking about the ten lost tribes of Israel. The Northern Kingdom was composed of ten tribes, and this is where the expression comes from. Um, they lost their identity as being Hebrew. They lost their identity as being worshippers of Yahweh. And they became assimilated in Persia and never heard from again. Now we come to the, what are known to biblical scholars as the pre-exilic, before the exile prophets. And we'll talk about that coming up. There's going to be another exile Isaiah and Micah. Now, Isaiah's prophetic career spanned some 40 years, starting with the death of King Uzziah. Unlike Israel, Judah enjoyed relative economic, social, and political stability. Uzziah modernized the army, conquered the Philistine plain, which put him in control of the main commercial highways between Egypt and um, the Fertile Crescent. So all comers had to go through uh, the, the territory that 
Uzziah had conquered. He developed agriculture and constructed the copper and iron mining city of Elath. The only disturbing event of his reign was around 750 BC when Uzziah came down with leprosy. It had to be confined to a separate house. But uh, he, was, he still remained king. Still, social injustices such as rapacious landlords uh, swallowing up the land of small farmers were becoming increasingly common. Just as with the northern kingdom, the wealthier they became, um, the more they were subject to being uh, tied to wealth as an object of, of life. So anything else went. Everything else was okay. The, uh, Isaiah's career spanned two periods. In the early uh, first period, he, he comes across as being city-bred. He uses urban metaphors and has an affection for Jerusalem. Uh, we, uh, the, the speculation is that he was perhaps a priest of the temple in Jerusalem. Um, he, he was nurtured in circles that stressed special relationship between Yahweh and the Davidic dynasty. Thus, he was the chief exponent of a hope for a Messiah, the anointed one, coming from David's line. And here, this is the beginning of the looking for a, a Messiah and during Jesus' time started with Isaiah. We've got a break now, so I will be back with you momentarily. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. Are you satisfied with your life? Do you know that more should be possible? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the creators of Access, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane here. Our program offers pragmatic tools to change things in your life that you haven't been able to change until now. What if all of life could come to you with ease, joy, and glory? Tune in to Access Consciousness Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Empowerment. Are you really? Are you the person you want to be, or are you the person that others want you to be? Think about that. We don't always recognize our gifts and potential because we stick to old methods of being and do what others in our lives tell us. It's time to break through. Listen for Rediscovering the Magic of Being with Marja. Each program connects you back to whom you were meant to be every Tuesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in. Build your better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to DefendingCatholicFaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Welcome back. I was just talking about uh, the beginning of Isaiah's prophetic career. Um, and he was a chief exponent 
in this early part of his career for a Messiah, one coming from David's line. If you remember David, the prophet Nathan made a promise to David from God that his successors would remain on his throne um, so long as they obeyed God's precepts. And of course, the whole history of both kingdoms is um, far from that ideal. But nevertheless, Isaiah kind of brought the so-called Davidic covenant with God, that there would be a heir with his bloodline on the throne forever, um, began to overtake the covenant that Moses made with Yahweh Mount Zion. And we'll get back to that shortly. Um, his call to prophecy came at a critical time. Uzziah had just died, and his son, his successor, was was a weakling who, in the face of the Assyrian threat, um, really didn't have much gumption. So that when Isaiah says, my eyes have seen the king, chapter 6, verse 5, he means that the people are most deeply dependent upon Yahweh, not the person sitting on the throne, who is uh, Jotham. As on Sinai, the smoke during his call to be a prophet in the temple, the, the temple was filled with smoke. The smoke both reveals and hides God's presence. And uh, that is something that um, we still talk about. The Eastern Orthodox Christians uh, are characterized by what's been called the via negativa, the negative way. We in the West tend to say what God is, what he does. He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's all this, that, and the other. But the Eastern Orthodox emphasize what God is not, simply because he is infinite and we cannot begin to wrap our little finite consciousness around the infinite. And um, the very word infinite is a projection in human language of something that we, we cannot experience firsthand. Um, <clears throat> Isaiah's experience reflects a basic aspect of worship, a contrast between the solemnity, sublimity and purity of God and the creatureliness, sinfulness of human beings. His commissioning is preceded by an experience of forgiveness. He had to be forgiven in order to undertake his um, awesome responsibility of being a prophet. And uh, this is something that the church, the Catholic Church anyway, has still recommends to this day. Before undertaking something that's going to change your life, like marriage, to, to go to confession. And that idea comes, comes all the way back from Isaiah here. <clears throat> Before beginning his commission, he has to be aware of his unworthiness and putting himself in the Lord's hands. His, his charge to proclaim God's word to those whose heart is fat, by which he means insensitive, whose ears are heavy, they're dull, and whose eyes are blind, reflects more than just experience. In retrospect, God himself must have known all along how it would be received. Like excessive light or sound that blinds or deafens, prophet's work would only serve to increase in sensitivity to God's purpose and will. Yet not all is lost, for a stump will remain, like one standing out in a burned forest from which a new growth will spring forth. Here's that idea of, of punishment being redemptive. 
Like Amos, the day of Yahweh will be one of darkness and judgment against the pride and self-sufficiency of the people. The silver and gold, horses and chariots, fortified cities, so forth and so on, that they have idolized, and idolatry is just trusting anything less than God. Yet again, God's purpose is not primarily destructive, but to restore his people to health. Now, in the year 733-732 B.C., there was a Syro-Israelite alliance. Pekah of Israel, remember, came to the throne through assassination, and Rexon of Syria conspired to rebel against Assyria and jointly together invaded Judah to replace Ahaz, the son of Jotham, with the puppet who would join them in a united front. Panicky, the weak and vacillating Ahaz, burned his son as an offering in the valley of Hinnom, hoping to placate the divine wrath. And how true it is that crises often reveal our true colors. Yes, they had human sacrifice in Israel right up until the exile, which is coming down the road here. Um, let's take a look at 2 Kings, chapter 16, verses 3 and 4. He did not, Ahaz did not praise the Lord his God like his forefather David, but conducted himself like the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, and even immolated his son by fire in accordance with the abominable practice of the nations whom the Lord had cleared out of the way of the Israelites. Further, he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on hills, and under every leafy tree. Um, it shows you just how um, unsure of himself that he was. Ahaz was inspecting the city's water supply in anticipation of an invasion, the, the, the Israel-Syria uh, alignment. Um, when approached by Isaiah, and by, uh, Isaiah and his son, whose name was She'ar Yashub, which translates, a remnant shall return. So he, Isaiah named his sons with prophetic names. That must have been an interesting thing to grow up with. My name is a remnant shall return. Shall return and turn to God, repent, turn back to God. Isaiah's message must have seemed too simple to Ahaz Absolute dependence upon and trust in God is the greatest resource in a time of trouble. But Ahaz was practical. For Isaiah, the alliance cannot succeed unless God wills it. So forget about asking Syria for help. Assyria. This is where the word Emmanuel comes up in means God is with us. The purpose of a sign is to make visible, to confirm dramatically the truth and power of God's word spoken by the prophet. It's the visual dimension of the audiovisual message. It doesn't have to be miraculous or unusual in character. Thus the names of his children were signs. Ahaz apparently had already made up his mind to ignore Isaiah's advice, for he refused to ask a sign of God on pretense of piety. Exasperated, Isaiah announced that God himself would give a sign. The birth of a child in the near future to a young woman, the child's name would be God is with us, Emmanuel. And before it is old enough to choose between good and evil, Syro-Israelite alliance would have been broken up by Assyria, which would then act as God's razor to shave Judah also. 
unlike the faith as they has, this child would faithfully lead the government, even though initially it would be a time of woe as the Assyrians reduce the land to a wilderness, which has a double meaning. It is a time of judgment, but also of opportunity. He will share the people's suffering, but when the Assyrians are gone, he will ascend the throne as agent of God's rule over his people. Now, sometime after his encounter with Ahaz, a second son was born to Isaiah's wife. His name was Maha Shalal Hashbaz. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Rich means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. In other words, the time of judgment is approach, rapidly approaching. But the words and the signs were for naught. Ahaz had to be practical. So he appeased, he appealed to Tiglath-Pileser for help against Israel and Syria coming after him. The result was that Syria and a large part of Israel were annexed to the Assyrian Empire. Ahaz went to Damascus to pay tribute with treasure from the temple and palace in Jerusalem and returned with blueprints for an Assyrian altar, which he built in the temple, showing clearly that he was now a vassal of Assyria. This is Ahaz in Jerusalem. Um, this is final proof of his lack of faith. And Isaiah asserted that Judah would pay a fearful price for rejecting the waters of Siloam that flow softly. Siloam was a little aqueduct that carried water into Jerusalem in favor of the Euphrates River for which the capital of Assyria was on in the city of Nineveh. Um, this gentle stream of Siloam contrary to the river Euphrates, was a symbol of quiet faith in Yahweh, whose kingdom is more powerful than the mightiest of human empires. With that, he retired from prophetic activity and withdrew into a circle of like-minded friends. And we can mention at this point, give a brief mention to Micah, who was on the scene uh, at the same time as Isaiah. But his hometown was a small village about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. He was a rustic fellow who spoke out for farmers suffering at the hands of powerful landlords. And he thought, he thought of cities as being a source of evil. And you still get that feeling. Um, about big cities. Because there is a lot of um, unhappy events going on in, in large cities. Unlike Isaiah, however, Micah didn't believe that Jerusalem would be spared. Other than that, we don't know very much about him. So now we come to Isaiah's late period of his prophetic career. A turning point in Judean affairs came when Hezekiah became king in the year 715. Religious reform was one of his accomplishments. He suppressed local shrines known as high places, concentrated worship in the temple. This was the beginning of, of, of the practice that went right up into our Lord's time. Um, the only place to really worship in the Israel of Jesus' day was to go to the temple in Jerusalem. That way, uh, Hezekiah could have more control over what the religion was doing or not doing. Um, by concentrating worship in the temple. And purging the temple itself of all images and foreign divinities. This provided a stimulus for Judean nationalism and reflected a new revolutionary spirit by removing the Assyrian cult object from the temple was a virtual declaration of independence from Assyrian domination. 
Um, now, he got away with it because Sargon, the new uh, Syrian king, emperor, whatever he was, was preoccupied with war in northern Mesopotamia. It also paved the way for the Deuteronomic reform, which we will get to shortly. Um, he also constructed the Siloam Tunnel, which is 1,700 feet long through solid rock, and it's there to this day, to ensure the city's water supply during a siege. When Egypt instigated a revolt in Ashdod, one of the city, cities on the plain near the Mediterranean, against Assyria, it, it, Isaiah came out of retirement to warn Hezekiah against becoming involved. And this is the beginning of his uh, second phase of his prophetic work. We have another break coming, so I will see you back shortly. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com As a Catholic or non-Catholic, would you be interested in knowing more about the faith? We have a large selection of books in various categories from apologetics to spirituality. CDs and DVDs are also available, as well as handcrafted rosaries. In short, we are a resource for seekers. If we do not have what you are looking for, give us a call and we will try to find it for you. Visit DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com to find out more or call us at 251-317-3977. That's DefendingTheCatholicFaith.com. The White House Doctor Makes House Calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to transform your life. Start by tuning in to The Glenise Show with Glenise Hughes. Glenise combines business, relationships, wealth, life, and a whole lot of magic to create abundance and prosperity in every part of your life. It's all done through straight and often frank discussions in the best way that Glenise knows how. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Master your life with The Glenise Show. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are tuned into Religious Faith and the Public Square with Father John Holloman. To reach the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to DefendingCatholicFaith at gmail.com. Now, back to Religious Faith and the Public Square. We're just getting up to the beginning of Isaiah's second um, stint as a prophet. Egypt instigated a revolt in Ashdod, a city on the coast, the Mediterranean coast, against Assyria. And Isaiah came out of retirement to warn Hezekiah against becoming involved. It must have worked, for Assyria did not invade Judah after reducing Ashdod and incorporating the entire Philistine plain as a province of the empire. Egyptians, who had instigated the uh, citizens of Ashdod to revolt, uh, um, left them in the lurch and didn't, didn't come to help them. However, the death of Sargon in 705 set off a chain reaction. Babylonian king consolidated revolutionary forces in his own area and sent invitations to Palestinian monarchs to join in. 
This time, Hezekiah could not resist, despite Isaiah's heated protest. Isaiah's perspective of the international scene was not that of a diplomat or a shrewd political observer, for it was born of a religious conviction that Yahweh was running history, and Assyria had been called to serve Yahweh's purpose. That's why he referred to Assyria as Yahweh's razor to shave Judah. The Assyrian tyranny would be overthrown, but not until God had carried out the judgment on his own people. Resistance could be fruitless, as we see in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, By waiting and by calm you shall be saved. In quiet and in trust your strength lies. But this you did not wish. Now, Sennacherib, who was the new Assyrian emperor, decisively defeated the Babylonians. And after restoring order in Mesopotamia, launched a campaign in the west. After destroying a large Egyptian army at Ekron, he invaded Judah in 701 and surrounded Jerusalem itself after reducing outlying fortresses such as Lachish. <clears throat> then came the famous ultimatum, which you can find in 2 Kings 18, chapters 18 and 19, especially chapter 18. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, went on an expedition against all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. Leave me and I, won't, I will pay tribute to you, impose whatever tribute you impose on me. The king of Assyria exacted 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold from Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hezekiah paid him all the funds there were in the temple of the Lord and in the palace treasuries. He broke up the door panels and the uprights of the temple of the Lord, which he himself had ordered to be overlaid with gold, and gave the gold to the king of Assyria. Um, at this point, Isaiah seemingly does an about-face and urges Hezekiah to resist. God has accomplished the scourging of his people, and Israel must be spared for there to be a remnant to learn their lesson and return to the Lord. This deliverance will be a final reminder that it is Yahweh, not Assyria, or any other human power who is Lord of history. <clears throat> what must have seemed like a miracle, the Assyrian army departed overnight without laying siege to Jerusalem. Now, there are two possible reasons. One could have been that a plague broke out in the Assyrian camp, or secondly, a revolt had broken out again in another part of the empire, and historians generally consider that the latter is more likely. But the point is they left overnight, just disappeared um, without notifying anybody in Jerusalem, um, Babylonia was potentially more troublesome than little Judah, and his objectives had been accomplished in Palestine anyway, including the tribute from Hezekiah. Whatever, he was assassinated by one of his own sons after returning to the capital of Nineveh. The result is that Judeans took the deliverance of Jerusalem to mean that it would be spared no matter what. Isaiah could hardly have been pleased with this development. The focus was now on the Davidic versus the Mosaic Covenant. Isaiah drops from view after this. Tradition has it that he was martyred during the reactionary reign of Hezekiah's successor, Manasseh. And this leads us to consider the Deuteronomic reform. Now the background is this. Manasseh's long reign which was from 687 to 640 B.C., coincided with the height of Assyrian power and prestige. 
At one point, even Memphis, capital of Egypt, was taken, and the pharaoh was made captive. Manasseh seems to have bought peace and have secured his own throne by playing the part of an obsequious vassal. And indeed, throughout this period, Judah was left alone. His policies could not help but aggravate those who remembered the reforms of Hezekiah. Manasseh's policies promoted the amalgamation of the worship of Yahweh with that of Baal. Yahweh was now worshipped at the altars of Baal. The emblem of the mother goddess, Asherah, was made and sacred prostitution was practiced in accordance with Baalism, which is a fertility of religion. And also um, believed in, um, like, voodoo in this country, sympathetic magic. Stick a pin in a doll here, and it'll, it'll affect some person over there. Um, the astral cult of Mesopotamia, the worship of all the host of heaven, in other words, the stars, was introduced to the temple in Jerusalem. He revived the old cult of the dead, necromancy. He resorted to human sacrifice by having his own son burned as an offering. Manasseh seems to have enforced his policies ruthlessly. He shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. There's a quote scripture. Hence the tradition of Isaiah's martyrdom. In short, Manasseh bought peace at the price of surrendering Israel's distinctive religious heritage. Heretofore, the focus had been on the Davidic covenant, but something had gone obviously wrong. Manasseh's son, Ammon, lasted only two years before being murdered during a patriotic revolt, at which time the boy king, Josiah, who was eight years old at the time, came to the throne. And he ruled from 640 to 609 BC. Just He came to the throne just seven years before the death of Ashurbanipal, who died in 633, the last of the Assyrian monarchs, strong enough to hold the empire together. Assyria has demonstrated inability to quell revolts after his death, when Josiah was 15, meant that Judah was right for a radical change in policy. It was a prophet Zephaniah, probably, probably a Jerusalemite, since he mentions the city districts by name and before the great reform of 621, must have been shortly after the death of Ashurbanipal. He echoed Amos and Isaiah by announcing the day of Yahweh as a day of wrath, denounced the worship of alien divinities and the complacent notion that Yahweh was impotent to do either good or evil, and announced that a remnant would be saved from the Holocaust, which means whole burnt offering. <clears throat> now, early Jeremiah, like Zephaniah, he protested the religious syncretism that all but erased the distinctive elements of Israel's faith. He also called for a reformation, not just of externals, but especially of the heart, the seat of our loyalties and affections. Circumcision of the heart means humble submissiveness to the will of God as opposed to one hardened in stubborn rebellion. Um, you hear the expression often enough in the Old Testament, stiff-necked, stiff-necked people, which was meant they were insisting on their own lights to solve their problems and they would not dip their head, bow their head to Yahweh which is still very much with us, that whole idea um, 
if God gets inconvenient, we'll just do away with him. Um, Isaiah's call was to break up the hard ground that had encrusted the lives of the people. They had become stiff-necked. Now, the reform itself. Josiah's first efforts at reform was in the 12th year of his reign, 627, or six years before the Deuteronomic reform. And the dates for that can be found in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 3. <clears throat> his program stepped up with the rise to power of Nabopolassar, 625 to 605, who led the Babylonians to independence from the Assyrians. Religious reform and nationalism went hand in hand as expressions of political independence. In the 18th year of his reign in 621, a discovery was made while the temple was undergoing renovation, which could have been, been cleansing of it all the the, the foreign idols. <clears throat> the book of the Torah, which means teaching, it was authenticated by going to the prophetess Hulda. The result is it accelerated and gave direction to the reform already underway, which went beyond the cleansing of the temple to the abolition of high places, which had been hotbeds of pagan practices. It even extended to the destruction of the rival temple at Bethel, which was still nominally under Assyrian control, but practically not very, not really. By concentrating worship in Jerusalem, it could be rigorously watched by the official priesthood and kept pure. It was a conservative reform that sought to preserve distinctive elements of their faith without capitulating to the cultural pressures of the world around them. And that is very much still a problem we're wrestling with today. Um, the pressures of secularism. <clears throat> I, I will stop at that point, since we're about to have come to an end of the show. I'll be seeing you next week to pick up there from there and get into the Deuteronomic reform. Have a good week, and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to Religious Faith and the Public Square. Please join Father John Holloman again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope you have a very good week.